Have you tried a bunch of different businesses and still haven't found the one? Like you're yet to hit a home run and find your first breakout success. Well, you might want to consider starting or buying an ice cream shop. Like so many of us, today's guest Sean Allard was young, hungry, and throwing anything and everything at the entrepreneurial wall, just trying to see what would stick. He bounced around from real estate to a rental car business to even dental consulting, but things weren't working out for him. He didn't find the overnight success that seemingly every second person on our social media feeds has found. In fact, he couldn't get any traction starting a business. But then he discovered the opportunity to buy a business and he got moving. He was open to pretty much any type of business, except ironically, a food and beverage business. He'd heard of way too many horror stories to even consider it. But sure enough, novel ice cream shop became available. A broker floated it his way and the numbers made sense. Three locations in, a coffee shop on the way, and business buying opportunities flying left, right, and center at him, Sean has found his lane and is expanding rapidly. Ice cream has quite literally changed the entire trajectory of his life. You don't get to talk to an ice cream business owner every day, especially one growing so aggressively. So I was excited to say the least for this one, and Sean didn't disappoint. If you want to get into the food and beverage small business game specifically, or you're struggling to find the right business to launch your entrepreneurial career, Sean lays out the practical game plan to get firing in this game. As always, I'm your host, Jake Richards. You're listening to the Salary to CEO podcast, the show that helps you go from nine to five into small business ownership. We've got a tactical masterclass coming up in this episode. So without further ado, let's get into it. Sean Allard, thanks for joining me, man. How you doing? Yeah, thank you for having me, man. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Been a ride, so I'm happy to kind of outline where things are at and excited to to chat about it. Totally, we're going to dive into all of that today. So you bought Novel Ice Cream, was it last year? Yep, August of 2023. When I was reading up on your story and how this all came into play, like many of us, you caught the ETA bug, the entrepreneurship through acquisition bug, by a buy them build. You went out on your search. And the most hilarious thing that I found about your whole story was you had one non-negotiable, which was, I'm not going into food and beverage, particularly retail, but here you are sitting in front of me, you're the ice cream man. So how the hell did this all flip on its head to the point where the guy who swore by not going into food and beverages is uh, well in the thick of it now? Yeah. The, the non-negotiable for me was food and beverage, simply because of the horror stories I heard, right? You know, 80% of them fail, whether it's restaurants, bars, whatever, you know, anything in that space is, is very hard to operate. So I kind of wrote it off as, as an opportunity or a road I wasn't willing to take. So my search really revolved around everything but that. And over the span of about two and a half, three months of, of search, I was in touch with a good broker out of Arizona. We were going back and forth on a few deals. And this one ended up coming across his desk. I guess you could say it was off market. He had had a very early on conversation with the current owner of the business. And uh, he was looking to sell, didn't really know next steps, didn't know what that looked like. So they were, again, very early on in that conversation. So ended up presenting me that offer, reviewed some of the early financials he had put together, some P&Ls, things like that. And Truly from a high level, it was a financial pull for me because it fit my buy box. Numbers were great. I knew the brand, obviously from being local. I was pretty much writing it off until I dug a little deeper into the financials and better understood what his, what the seller's plans were with the business and things like that. So long story short, financials were what pulled me in initially. And then as I kind of opened my mind up to the possibility of this being something I could do. Yeah, I got excited about getting creative with a project like this more than, you know, a traditional business, more than you can in a traditional business. Totally. And it's interesting that you mentioned the financials there because I saw when you bought this business, it was doing like 250K in SDE in discretionary earnings. And that's normally like one of the key pieces of advice, at least in buy them build, if I'm not mistaken, around 1 million in EBITDA. And I saw you writing some content about oh God, am I just buying myself another job? Am I going against all the advice? But you had mm -hmm. it in your mind that you wanted full ownership of this. And like many of us that are getting into this space, that was kind of what was available to you. That's the market that you were shopping in. So I'm just curious to get your experience on this topic around what were the risks that you accepted and your reflection going that little bit lower, having come out sort of the other side of that now. So given my price point, uh, I was looking for businesses in the one to $2 million range. And Obviously, 
if I wanted to bring on investors, if I wanted to bring on some partners, whether that was you know, silent or you know, some equity partners that would help me operate, I could have gone much bigger and I could have taken a lot more time to make those connections, build relationships and get that network around me to actually buy something larger. And I could have even gone the traditional search route and, you know, had financial support on the back end and, and gone bigger. So there were definitely options out there. It's not that uh, I didn't have that. It was more of a choice that I knew I wanted to buy something fairly quickly. And my buy box limited me to that typical range of two to 300 SDE. If you're, you know, if you're looking at a million to a million five in a revenue business. So yeah, like you said, you tend to hear the mantra of you're buying yourself a job, which is in many cases true. I think I got lucky in a sense that this business had a great team around it, a team of about 18 to 20 at any even time in the last wow. three or four years, two great managers who are overseeing both of the, the current locations that, that we have. And so the owner actually did a great job with the limited resources, funding, cash, all of the, you know, he, he, he did an amazing job with what he had available to him to set his business up for success and actually ultimately set me up for success as an owner, you know, not requiring me to be in this business on a day-to-day -day basis, actually being the ice cream man and, and, and scooping in shops. So totally looking at it on the other side, I think if you're looking at any other industry or any other business of this size, I think you are buying yourself more of a job. I truly think I got lucky with how he positioned the business and his expertise in this space. He, he set it up differently than what you typically see a business on this side has. And it sounds like that key thing there was around the team he built and the people he had managers in place that made that this unique opportunity as opposed to something else where, yeah, it's smaller, uh, similar SDE, similar income, but it's largely owner-driven in terms of the operation and all that kind of thing. Exactly. All the relationships, all the vendors, all of the day-to-day -day operations are usually being handled by the owner. Again, the beauty of this is that those two managers that were in place were handling most of the day-to-day -day operations and also overseeing most of the team. I also did put a lot in place in the first one to two months to further their development. So some of the things that the seller was doing, such as scheduling, for example, was something that I need, I wanted to hand off to the current managers. He wanted to have his hands on something like that or inventory management. Some of the, some of the things that he wanted to have his hands on, I was okay not having my hands in and, and you know, training immediately and giving those things off. So he was definitely involved to a certain extent and truthfully. You're looking at maybe 10 to 15 hours a week if he didn't do anything else in the business, if he wasn't marketing, if it wasn't out there in the community or expanding a third or fourth location. So that's what I was handed. And now, you know, looking back, I think the great part about having those two managers in place is that I could give them a lot more right off the bat. And then my 10 to 15 hours a week, if that's what I decided to work on, would be focused on expansion, actually growing the business versus being in it. What's really cool is when I was reading about your search, you had this like hilarious tweet and I was like, called the business owner today, said he would find and bury me if I ever called him again. Think he's down to sell a finance? What the hell were you doing in your search to get that kind of yeah, abuse? That, that's, uh, <laughs> that happened actually a few times and it's, it's pretty common now, especially if you are in a you know, hotbed of entrepreneurship or business buying like Austin, Phoenix, like some of these major markets these good local businesses are just getting a lot of calls because the mm. space is getting more popular. So people are getting more comfortable picking up the phone and calling local business owners to see if they'd be willing to sell. And so that was part of my search. I didn't do it a whole lot. I would say maybe 10 to 15 businesses in my local area. I called in, in about three months. So it's happened a few times and I still do it. If I like a business or I, I shop somewhere or make a relationship with somebody that I end up seeing some potential in, like I'll throw it out there and see if they're willing to to put something together. And yeah, great conversation. <laughs> and the fact that he uh, yeah, pretty much cussed me out for <laughs> two to three minutes and told me to start calling him. And he's gotten two or three calls already in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, enough is enough. I'm not telling that. Might've been a difficult they're, they're negotiation if you hadn't have got that response anyway with a guy like that. Yeah.
the, the seller finance piece is funny because that's the route I take typically with these off-market business owners. Obviously, just a tip for anybody that is going off-market is try to pull that lever as much as possible, especially for these businesses that are smaller in the sub-million dollar revenue range is see how willing they are to help you out financially, whether that's carrying half of the loan, carrying the whole thing. You know, if their plan is to exit at some point, that's no doubt a lever that I would pull. And we could talk about this and, and with novel, but that's a lever I should have pulled given what I know now. Interesting. So on that note, a couple of things. One, from the breadcrumbs that I'm getting from this conversation, it sounds like you're not slowing down on the acquisition side and you're actually looking to expand. I saw you're already going to expand another shop with novel, but two, on the seller financing piece, since novel, maybe you've been going out and approaching these off-market deals. Has there been any sort of general script or approach you've taken to kind of encourage that? And to is it just as simple as asking, are you open to this? Is there any sort of framing that you're applying? Like, how are you going about it? I really don't frame it a certain way. Most of the conversations are, are very organic and they lead to, especially if I'm going off-market, most of them had no intention of selling or they may have thought about it in the past, but it's not something they're actively pursuing. They're not actively talking to buyers. Not so, desperate. Exactly. None of them are desperate, which is a good thing. They're not necessarily looking to take this cash and park it in real estate or retire off that money. So there's there are pros to a seller or a, an owner not being in a rush to sell because you can play those cards. And seller financing is a is a plus for them because I mean, simply put, on the tax side of things, that's going to help them significantly. They're not taking a $575,000 piece of income mm. for, for a single year. So the play is fairly simple. I just kind of give them two or three different options. I, you know, I lay out like, Hey, I would love to buy the business. If you're looking for your price, I'm happy to do that price, but I'd want, you know, let's say 80% financing or seller financing. I'll put 20% down. I could go the SBA route. That's going to be hypothetically four weeks, five weeks. And then, you know, we can do maybe half down and, and half seller finance. So I, I kind of lay out all the options and say, here's where my head is at. What would you be open to? Most of the time it's, I want a chunk of change right away. So I'm willing to wait four to six weeks for an SBA. But again, I, I try to pull the levers and say, cool, if we did your price, you know, exactly what you're looking to get out of it, how much could we sell a finance and, and how much could we avoid putting some debt or bringing on a bank to this, to this deal? Yeah, no special sauce. It's just lay your cards on the table and, and seeing what they're open to. And working with them, right? And how much does that sort of say they come back and they go, look, I, I actually do need the money. I'm not interested in seller financing. How does that start to look from like a rough percentage in terms of when the deal terms start getting tipped more in their favor? Is there any sort of guidance around what that starts to look like in terms of how that impacts the actual offer in terms of amount, if they're going to be getting it all at once? Is there, is there any guidance there? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So for, for a bar I'm looking at in Arizona right now, the owner was looking to get 750 out of the deal. And one, I, I don't want to come out of pocket on this deal at all because I'm parking all of my cash into novel and another project we're working on in the food and beverage space. So ideally, I'm not coming out of pocket for this acquisition. And so I said, I'd love to see if we can put SDA debt or conventional debt on the deal but I need to come way down in price if we're going to do any sort of down payment because most deals, if you're doing, if you're bringing debt on it, you're looking at 10 to 20% down. Not doing 75,000 down, I'll do something like 45 to 55,000 down. You know, I'm presenting that offer saying, you know, if we do put debt on it, I need to come way down in price because I know I'm going to need to put 10% on the deal. Kind of the back and forth now has been around his need for that cash to park it in real estate. So he can work on other projects that he's currently pursuing. So the need for him is the immediate cash. The immediate need for me or the, the request of mine is sitting in the forty-five to $55,000 down payment range. So it's just coming to a meeting of the minds and saying, here's, here's what I can afford realistically. If we do, if we make this a win-win, I know you need the cash. This is what I can afford if I do come 10% and put a personal guarantee and SBA debt on this deal which is significantly more risky for me at this point. Mm. Here's what I need to do to make myself comfortable. Again, a lot of it is, is like trying to identify your wants and needs, what makes sense for you to sleep at night and what's, what's going to make them 
pull the trigger on something? What's going to make them feel like they came out of a, a deal with a win? On that note, I see that you're a reader. I saw Die With Zero behind you. Good book. <laughs> um, there's a book yeah. that I read recently called Business Wealth Without Risk. It's by two guys. I think his name's Jay Abraham and Roland Frazier. I want to say something along those lines. Really, really interesting book about creative financing routes for business, small business acquisitions. So there's like a long list of different options, obviously not just seller financing, not just SBA, but everything that you can possibly imagine. It's blew my mind with how many different options yeah, there are. That is a route I should have gone down before purchasing. I didn't go down the rabbit hole of creative financing and actually understanding how to structure a really good deal. I saw SBA, I saw cash and bank, and I said, cool, this is the op- this is how you buy a business. This is the one and only option versus going in and diving into all of the opportunities that are out there and, and how to structure something creatively. So that is a book I will read and probably should have read six months ago before <laughs> going into the deal because I didn't get a bad deal per se, but there's definitely some things I could have done better or I could have approached the seller differently to structure something that would have still been a win-win or ultimately a win for him, but had a lesser or a smaller debt load on the business. Yeah, for sure. And it's always hindsight bias, right? But the flip side to what you're saying is you started searching four months later, you bought your first business, whereas the average is like, you know, 1.5 to two years. So the flip side of your going in all guns blazing with the SBA is that you're actually in the game now and now you're learning these next things and now you're going to make your next acquisitions. And it actually reminded me of another guy that we had on the pod, James Richardson. So he's bought six businesses, six SMBs. He's in Nashville. And he told me straight up, like I overpaid more than I should have on the first deal, but it gave me the confidence. It got me in the game. And now I've obviously learned from that mistake because I'm slightly, no, it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't a bad business. He just paid more than what he should have for it. But like you said, like that gave him the confidence, the ball's rolling and all of a sudden you've got the momentum behind you versus sitting on the sidelines a lot. So I think that's a key lesson there. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, just to hit on that really quick, I think the not only the confidence, but the credibility you get in uh, the environment is huge, right? Now that I've closed on a deal, I've transacted, I have, you know, I, I haven't been in this for years, but I have six months of, you know, of running a successful, you know, fairly big business. Yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. It's given me the confidence, but it has opened up 10x the opportunities I would have had before where I was prior, was like scratching and clawing for deal flow and opportunities and potential partners and, and investors. Now I have a vast network of people I can go to that trust in the fact that I can get deals done. I sort of know what I'm doing and I've learned many, many lessons from that one transaction already that they can even feel confident in me going back to the negotiating table with, with owners and, and structuring deals more creative than, you know, if I would have never done this in the first place. So, yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing that he said, actually, it's just like, whatever you can do to get your first deal over the line, get it done. Because even if that means 10, 20%, or in your case, dropping the SDE and going for something a little bit smaller, whatever that is, go for it because of the fact that it will open up more. If you've got any intentions of looking at acquiring other businesses, potentially, it's the best way, particularly on the broker side, to get more deal flow. So it's interesting to hear that you confirm that as well. Agreed. Interestingly, before you were in the ice cream game, you had a story that I related to quite a bit and you bounced around from real estate to rental car business to dental consulting. It sounds like you're just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what's stuck. Can you just run me through a little bit about that period of your life that led up to this, where you are now? Yeah. So post undergrad, planning on going to dental school. So I got into the dental space and that was that was my day, my day to day. Great, great business. That was not a business I owned, by the way. So I, I came on board with three partners and was really managing the operations for a couple of years and then doubled down on the sales side. And so my, uh, my day-to-day was, was on the dental side. So the kind of random projects I started from, I would say, 2021 on were, like you said, things in real estate just general sales. So I got my real estate license, was starting to do my own deals. So I did, I bought two like fix and flip properties that I was going to put some money into, 
get out of them in six to eight months. That didn't turn out the way I wanted it to still have one of those. Right. Still working on one of those, unfortunately. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would say real estate, rental car business, random stuff. I mean, just, just so many like dumb little things that never like took off really. It ultimately led to that because I never committed to one of them and actually put the amount of time any of them needed to survive or you know, at least get a hint of success. Kind of went through a, a variety of things and towards the end of 23 is when I sat back and said, okay, things are like, none of this is working and I need to find a better solution. And going into ETA was, was obviously that solution, but, but that's what led me to kind of sitting back, identifying what opportunities were out there in the, in the world or the marketplace of business. But before then, just random, random projects, throwing stuff at the wall, seeing if it's stuck and, you know, going from there. But, but obviously none of them, none of them stuck. Totally. I mean, that's, but that's the formative process that I think so many people go through, right? At first, you just, everything that comes to your mind that you think is a good idea, you're like, okay, I'm diving into this. I'm going to go after this and without too much consideration of how that's going to look. Yeah. The reality is that's kind of the environment which helps you build the skill set, which helps you discover oh, this isn't working. What else do I need to learn? And it kind of snowballs and guides you to this point, as long as you're taking the lessons along the way to where you're at now. So it's kind of like a necessary evil of so many people's journey, mine included. Oh, yeah. I'm excited to get into the the actual business now, the ice cream shop. And spoiler alert, I've never ran an ice cream shop before. I thought it could be cool to run like a hypothetical thought experiment, right? So you're taking off for three months tomorrow. You're going backpacking through Peru. I don't know. You're going on some crazy adventure. Maybe you're looking for a business to acquire over there. Mm -hmm. I'm coming in to step in for you, right? So we've got 24 hours to give me the rundown of like, what are the key buckets that I need to focus on for success in this business so that when you get back, the lights are still on and continuing. And then we'll dive into actually growing it and some of the ideas that you're going into there. Yeah. So if we're looking at a typical day. We're open Tuesday through Sunday. Schedules are done once a week. So if you're looking at a random Tuesday or Wednesday, what I would say the three buckets are one is managing the team, obviously, at both shops. So overseeing that they're doing what they need to be doing, whether that's opening, setting up night shift for success, and then closing. Those are really the, the three keys of a shift. And just on that, is that just A, scheduling the people to be on, then B, checklists and making repeatable processes and all that kind of thing, all the standard stuff? Yep. Yep. yep, exactly. So those checklists have been built out and those are in each of the shops, just making sure that everybody's following those checklists on a day-to-day, -day, opening checklist, midday checklist, closing checklist, totally. right? Simple stuff. Scheduling done once a week, like I said, but just making sure the schedule doesn't fall apart. So obviously you're in the service business, you're going to get call outs, you're going to get shift changes, you're going to get scheduling issues. So just making sure on the day to day that we have a full team for both shops every day, both shifts, morning and night. And so staying in touch with everybody throughout the day as well. How do you do that actually? Like, is there some sort of application where people mark things or is it just a Slack or how does that kind of work? Yep. Everything's run through Slack. Okay. So anytime somebody needs, needs to call out, needs a shift change, wants to trade a shift, is asking for a day off, excuse me, day off is through our, our scheduling platform, but everything right. else, communication with managers, everything like that is through Slack or just general text message. But we try to keep everything through Slack. So three buckets are really managing the team on a day-to-day -day basis, overseeing that things are getting done according to checklists, according to operational manuals, if you will, overseeing the schedule, and then really keeping track of inventory, both in the distribution center and the shops. So just keeping track morning and night that we have everything that we need for that day and for the next day. So everything that we do is pretty much handled through Google Sheets. So we're doing counts morning and night to track everything in the shops, make sure that we have everything we need primarily for the night crew, because that's when we're, we're busiest and don't want to run out of product. And then number three is really around customer service. Both of our managers are typically in the shops, so they're working about 40 hour weeks. Right. So just making sure that customers are being treated and, and serviced in, in the best possible way. We have scripts for the window. We have ways that we outline our menu, ways that we really walk a customer through, you know, ordering from us. So the key 
to a successful shift really is making sure that the customer experience is, is as high as possible or as strong as possible. So making sure that managers are, are really paying attention to how everybody is working and treating customers and just ultimately serving some customers is, is huge. But my day-to-day looks a lot different than that. So if I went to Peru for three months, we wouldn't be scaling out the acquisitions, which is kind of sounds We wouldn't be scaling out the acquisitions. We wouldn't be opening more shops. That's really what would, like the current operation works very well. Yeah. So as we grow and scale, I just need to take those three buckets and replicate that. Again and again. Per shop. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, it's fairly simple on a day-to-day yeah. other than, you know, just expansion plans, strategy, branding, you know, yes. there's a lot of back-end stuff. So two questions. First one being from an actual customer perspective in terms of leads, customers coming in the door, is it just as simple as the business that you're in is selling ice cream? Everyone loves ice cream. It's in the local community. And so long as you're providing some sort of solid product and they're having a good experience, they just keep returning and it grows like that way? Or is it social media? Is there other things that you're doing to get people in the door? Like how does your actual leads and customers look like in a business like this, in a food business like this? Yeah. So three buckets there as well. Before I took over, it was purely word of mouth. So no SEO, no website, no local community engagement. It was really just maybe a once a quarter collaboration with a local business and word of mouth. Those were the two pieces that grew the business, which is fantastic because there's so much opportunity just waiting to be taken advantage of. So the three buckets are one word of mouth, which was taken care of. And I would, I would put local kind of engagement in that as well. I'm just being out in the community, meeting customers, meeting people. In shop or outside in at events and things? Events, other local businesses on a main street, for example. So actually going in there and talking with other people in the community, because most of, most of these smaller communities, one, the business owners know each other. And two, you're going to see a lot of the same people shopping, eating, like you, especially if you're in there a lot, you can, you can build those relationships that way. So that's, that's kind of word of mouth in a way, because obviously there's no spend behind that. It's of just course. manpower just organic. going in the community. So yeah. two would be social media. There was a presence and previous owner did a great job of that, but he wasn't putting enough attention into it. So now we're simply doing more collaborations, more consistency around just social content. We're not doing a ton of video. It's really just high quality photography. That's another opportunity that we will dive into is actually some more creatives. On that note, I'm from Australia. There's like a legit famous, like this is the ice cream shop in Australia, in Sydney. It's called Messina, Messina Gelato. Their Mm -hmm. social media, their social media guy is like famous. No one knows his face, but everyone knows him because of like just his chat and like language and tone and like it's it's a bunch of fun. And on top of that, they have awesome ice cream. So it might be worth doing. I mean, it sounds like you're across a lot of things, but it's always good to get inspiration. And um, they absolutely absolutely kill it. And they do some really cool things as well with like in terms of sourcing ingredients and where that comes from. And there's a bit of a story behind that. Cows from here, blah, blah, That's blah. That's the key. You, you hit it right there. Yeah. The, the differentiator that we've had is the story behind the brand. I don't think it was pushed enough. I don't think it was promoted or, or detailed enough. So that's something that we're, that I'm actively working behind the scenes on, on putting strategy together there and maybe even putting one to two team members in place to, to help out with that. So the, yeah, second bucket social and then third is SEO. So we're doing a ton of SEO, obviously built out a very basic website to begin with just to start getting traffic there. And so that has significantly driven traffic to, to both of our shops. Really? Just simply putting some, yeah, some time and attention to SEO. It's been close to about three months, three and a half months that we've actively been pushing that. And there's no really spend behind that. It's just, you know, optimizing Google My Business, optimizing updates, high quality photography, optimizing our website, just basic stuff. And again, there's no spend, there's no marketing spend behind that stuff. That's interesting because I hear the Google part there and that's where as a customer, I'm thinking of my customer journey, I would never go to a, a website, but I would always go on Google, look for the reviews, look at the photos that way. But it's interesting that, that you're saying that even on the website side, that drives some results for you guys as well. Just when, I guess they're just searching. Absolutely. Some people aren't searching on Google Maps. Sometimes they're searching on Google itself. 
And I mean more so, yeah, the customer journey definitely starts on Google or Google Maps. And now that we have a website, they can kind of, it's sort of confirming that we're a legitimate place. Right. And so they can see maybe some old merch that we've done. They can see what our shops look like. They can see we have a little bit of, a, of our story and some general photography on there as well. So it's kind of a hub for learning more about the brand. Obviously, 99% of our customers are, are going straight from Google Maps or coming straight from Google Maps. Yeah. And so our reviews are clearly driving that as well. So totally. I, I would put reviews in, this, in the SEO yeah. bucket in a way. I mean, our, our reviews, yeah, our feeding shops specifically have driven the results um, without a doubt. Oh, it's the biggest thing that I look for and everyone I know really looks for now. Gone are the days where yeah. you just, oh, that looks good. I'll just walk in and see. It's like, that looks good. Let me check the reviews. Oh, they're not too great. Okay, pass. Yeah. You kind of touched on it a little bit, but okay, that's keeping the business afloat and we've got a little bit of growth here on the social media side. But in terms of expanding this thing now, because that really seems to be your vision, what does that growth side look like? Is it just replicating what you've done and volume in different areas? Is there different things that you're doing? I'm curious how you're approaching this. I'm seeing three easier directions. One, more shops, obviously replicating what we're doing. The challenge there is that we're not in traditional retail. So all of our shops are very unique. So one of our shops is a small cottage. The other shop is down an alleyway in this little corridor with a window. like. And we want to keep that trend. So I'm being very picky in the locations that we select, but there's definitely a push to be in multiple markets, be across the nation at some point. But now, you know, in the next 12 months, we're looking at two more shops in Arizona and then potentially one in Texas, maybe one in Utah, hopefully four retail spots in the next 12 months. And then second, looking at grocery is another big one for us. We have never dove into prepackaged pints or any sort of grocery, whether it's a small market or, you know, a Sprouts or a, a large grocer. So that's, that's an avenue that I'm looking more into now. We're probably going to focus on local markets in Arizona first, just because we have a, a real presence here. Once we have a physical presence in a community and a new market, that's when we'll probably tap into the grocery. But uh, yeah, second kind of way there is grocery. And then third is mobile setups, events, catering, things of that nature. Mm. So we're building out some semi-permanent setups. We're doing a, an ice cream truck. We will do a couple ice cream trucks, uh, but we're doing one this year. And then just doubling down on events, catering, festivals, things of that nature with, with the truck itself. That is going to significantly grow the company in itself this year. So this ties all into strategy, right? And how are you kind of prioritizing all, I imagine you're having all these great ideas and you've just listed three of them there. How are you sort of assessing them and then prioritizing a good idea from a bad idea, or is it just an experiment? How are you taking that approach? Yeah. So given my experience in this industry, a lot of it is trial and error and seeing a lot of it is actual conversations with other owners and various food and beverage concepts, right? Learning from them getting a good understanding of what they've tried, playing it to, to our space. But a lot of it is, is trial and error. Obviously, cash is going to be the determining factor in how fast we do grow if I'm not trying to take on more debt or finance you know, some of these spaces or build outs. The way I'm prioritizing right now is you know, sticking to the original plan of open two to three shops a year. And then all of the other things will be I guess you could say like pros or add-ons to, to the plan, yeah. right? So two to three locations is, is what is predictable for us from a cash flow perspective. We can do that without taking a ton of, you know, raising any money or taking on any more partners. And so that seems like the most predictable route. If we have great months or quarters, we can start adding all of these other things to it. But I will need financial support if I grow, if I start growing into grocery and we start doubling down on even more locations or more mobile, mobile setups. So, and you probably struggle with this as well. Like all of the ideas seem like great ideas and why can't we do them all right now? Right? Mm. Like I have the time, like let's just, let's just do them all. The challenge is definitely picking one, seeing it to completion and if it works, replicating that. And so this will be my first official build out, if you will. Obviously I purchased the business, but these two locations were there. And so this will be a test to see if I can do this two to three times a year on my own, how we can actually 
sustainably do that. Truthfully, it's it's a test yeah. in this first quarter of 24. But you're almost validating some of these ideas and in some cases getting inspiration from these ideas from other similar businesses that might not be selling ice cream, but that they might be selling crepes or cakes or, or tacos or whatever it might be. And so exactly. you're in those communities, which is actually a big part of what you do, right? Which is connecting SMB business owners together, specifically in the Phoenix area. Is that one of the driving factors behind that, even just getting ideas and mixing and that kind of thing? Absolutely. A big part of it, truthfully, was wanting to continue to do acquisitions, wanting to meet other business owners just to learn from them, potentially partnering with them, maybe find some investors, make some investments from my side. So there was a few reasons behind it, but I felt like I had no idea what I was doing getting into it. And so I knew that there were others who, I, I knew other people searching for businesses in the area. Yeah. It sort of started that way where we had small meetups. I actually, it, it was started by another gentleman that purchased an accounting company. We had met, he wanted to form a small group. And then it kind of grew from there. I took the leap on trying to make these you know, kind of full scale events and meetups and bringing on panelists and putting uh, some structure behind it. Right. Truthfully, it was, it was to meet potential partners, investors, obviously build great relationships, make, come out of this with some great friends. And, and it's, uh, it's grown fairly well over the past four months. The first meeting was actually the day before I closed on Novel. The group is hovering around 80 to 100 attendees a meetup. We probably have about 500 total at this point in the community. It's been fantastic. And now having spent quite a bit of time in this space, connecting with some of these other people in the food and beverages industry via these meetups and other industries more broadly as well, of course. Let's take you back all the way to when you were looking for your first deal and this one came across your lap and you're like, no way, not food and beverage. To that person, to that version of you that was pretty anti this industry, what's your general take or like key pieces of advice for what to expect and your, your summary of being involved in this industry and how big of an opportunity it is, maybe what are some of the downsides, this kind of thing. So simply put, I would, I would just keep it open mind. And I know that sounds basic, but just keep an open mind because there are so many businesses that I initially counted off or, or wrote off as something I didn't understand, an industry I, I didn't see myself truthfully being successful in because of the lack of experience. So I, I think just keep an open mind, especially when it comes to a smaller business. If you're going large and, and you know you have a, a ton of capital and you have investors and partners, I think it is wise to be very strict with your criteria because you know you you can do you have the ability to to set those constraints. And so you definitely still do at a at a smaller scale. But if you want to buy something in less than two years and you want to learn the game of business, I think it's in your best interest to keep an open mind and not necessarily write off a specific industry. So keep an open mind, review everything that comes across your desk. And I think if, if anything, it's going to give you more reps and it's going to give you the opportunity to understand more industries. It's going to give you the opportunity to review more financials, which will then help you obviously in the long run with running your business in general and understanding a PL and understanding state balance sheets and things of that nature. So yeah, downsides of this, you always hear the personal guarantee side of things. I think that's one downside to buying smaller is that there is substantial risk in putting a personal guarantee behind an SBA loan. Because again, these businesses are volatile, especially in the food and beverage space. I hate to bring COVID into the picture, but you look at what happened to that industry. COVID, of course, yeah. Just completely collapsed. So that can happen. Right. You have to understand that. So stomaching the fact that you may have to put that up for, for grabs, put a personal guarantee on, on an SBA loan, if that's the route you're taking, if you're buying something, some million dollars and you can't buy that business out in cash and you can't find capital from other people. And I don't know if I'd call it a downside. It's just part of the game, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, there, there's risk, I would say involved in buying something sub a million bucks and there's risk involved in buying a $30 million business, but having a personal guarantee of really probably the entirety of your net worth in one business is risky. So take that into account and, mm. and hopefully you make the right decision. But yeah, there's, there's definitely risk there. You mentioned financials there. And I think that's probably one of the most intimidating parts of the whole process for a lot of people. Like 
I know I read up for yourself, you hadn't been someone that had done any sort of MBA, you hadn't dug into any financial statements before. Was it as simple as just doing the reps, like you said, reading, buy them, build, getting the basic process, doing the reps? Were you also getting other people's advice and input along that process? How did you get to a point where you felt comfortable? Like, okay, I'm going to take on this SBA loan, this personal guarantee, and I'm now comfortable enough with the financial statements, knowing that four months ago, I had no idea what the hell was going on here. Yeah. So I definitely got a second set of eyes on any of the opportunities I was, I was really pushing forward on. So with Novel, I had two to three people review things and these weren't due diligence experts or, you know, financial analysts or anything of that nature. These were other business owners that I really just loaded P&Ls and, and balance sheet to and said, hey, given your experience in the space, how do these financials look? How are these margins? Things like that. Yeah. Um, and can you confirm that I'm not crazy? Yeah. You know, basically. So floating these businesses or the opportunities that you want to pursue to your network is huge. Hopefully they're willing to help you and, and give you their, their perspective on it. That was reassuring when I got confirmation that I was on the right track. And this was, a, you know, definitely a business worth looking deeper into. And then when you go the SBA route or you do get a bank to review financials on a business, they're basically trying to say no, mm. right? To get a yes from a bank means that there is something there and the business has there's legs there. It is a somewhat solid business. And so to get backing from a bank is another way to sort of confirm that you're on the right track. Obviously, banks make mistakes as well, or there are humans behind that. So there's yeah. some subjectivity to that. But uh, yeah, those two angles, just getting reviews from your network, other business owners, and then floating it to a bank. If it's an SBA pre-approved business, that's great to sit down with that lender or sit down with that banker. And really walk through the business plan, walk through the financials, get their perspective on it. Try to get an understanding of why they wouldn't do the deal. So if they don't, that's something that you can take into account when you're looking at another deal saying, okay, this, you know, this debt coverage ratio is too low or these margins are too low for this industry. Mm. Just kind of taking away some nuggets from the people that you're are snowballing with you. With every interaction, whether it be business owner, bank or whatever it might be. And then when you go and review the next one, you've got that in your toolkit. Exactly. 100%. Exactly. I like to tie these interviews off with a bit of a game plan of how someone could get started doing something similar. And I've spoken with a few ETA guys before. So I thought what might be fun is to actually frame it more in the perspective of you're opening up your next shop, right? But for maybe someone that's opening up their first shop in the food and beverage space, maybe it's a taco shop, maybe it's an ice cream shop, maybe it's this kind of thing. What are the high level steps that someone would need to consider in order to launch something like this and set it up for success. And you might be able to reflect on how that's looking even with launching your, um, your third shop and potentially beyond that. Yeah, that's a good question. So from a high level, keeping it fairly simple, if, if you don't have experience in the space, find a partner who might have experience in that space and can help you develop a menu. So specifically the food and beverage space, we're working, obviously we're working on the third shop, but I'll, I'll look into this from a kind of coffee beginner. and food spot that we're working on. Okay, cool. And so I'm bringing a partner who has coffee experience, who has done a bar. He has experience in the food and beverage space. So his role is to primarily build the menu, actually help get everybody on the team trained up, actually build the layout of the inside of the shop as well. And so the initial setup for somebody who's new to the space would be find a partner or somebody who's been there, done that, plan out the concept from a high level. So, you know, I, I hate to be somebody who says write out a business plan, but just write like a one pager about what, you know, what is this brand about? What are you doing? Like, what's, what's the goal here? Is this a single shop spot? Is this, uh, you know, is this going to be something you want to scale? What is this brand about? So just kind of a quick one pager and then go into the city to actually outline the projects. How are we going to put this together? What do I need to put this together permitting wise? And then building things out, going in there, find a contracting team. If you're not going to be the only person in there and hiring the right team. And that could be from other local spots, poaching some people in the service space to come work for you a couple of days a week initially, but just building an initial team, planning out the menu and then branding and getting with local publications and local communities and, and actually building some hype. Know that you're going to be building some hype around the project. But that's really the playbook we're doing with the third shop. We already have obviously business plan, menu, partners, all that stuff put together. 
Um, but the biggest thing is identifying the, the right location. Are there any guiding criteria as to what is quote unquote the right location? A lot of it is gut feel. So if you are if you are a locally driven space and you're not, you know, a typical QSR quick service restaurant, if you're not franchising, a lot of it is based off of gut. Obviously, you could look at traffic and population and demographic, income per capita. There's yep. there's a ton of metrics you can look at and the higher, the better on all of those, right? Higher yep. income, higher population, more traffic in a specific area. But if you are locally driven, such as an ice cream shop, then a lot of it is boots on the ground, meeting other business owners in, in the area and really understanding what the vibe of that, of that area is. Would my concept to work here? Is your concept working? Yeah. Hey, like, how are you guys doing? That's a huge one too. Just sitting down with them and just being transparent. Like, hey, I want to bring my concept here, but is is your concept successful? And if it's not, this might not be the right play, even though we're doing something different. There just might not be enough enough here for two people to do this. So the third location has really been based off of, of gut feel. Luckily, I got connected with a great gentleman who owns a business up in the west side of, of Arizona. And so we kind of walked this area together and I knew he was successful in that spot. A lot of it is just grounding and pounding and being present in those areas and, and visiting them frequently and seeing different times of the day. And visiting whatnot. other businesses. Yeah. Yeah. The, the consistent theme throughout this conversation is leveraging the experience and the input from other business owners. And that seems to be like a really totally. key thing, particularly for someone like yourself that was just getting to this space for the first time, that bought into this. The power of other people's experience fast tracks that learning curve so much from what I'm hearing. 100%. This would be extremely difficult if I would have not met the people I have met in the last six months, just because I would be, it's a blank slate for me, right? I don't, I, I don't know how to approach this business without that knowledge or without some years to hear me out to better understand if I'm on the right track or not. So you're absolutely right. Like the, the network you can build around you is, is arguably the most important piece of the puzzle, especially if you're getting into something with no private experience. And in terms of building that network, is it as simple as walking into the shop and going, who's the owner of the places that you like in the space that you're in? Or are there other meetups? 99% of the time. Yeah. Obviously meetups has helped. So other local business owners will definitely come to the meetups and, and we'll, we'll connect there. But if I'm going into a specific location or an area or I want Novel to be there or really any other concept, if I'm looking at a, another space, I, yeah, 99% of the time it's, it's stepping foot in the business. If they are not there, getting their contact info. I just did that with another space recently where I wanted to build a mobile setup on that lot and uh, owner wasn't there, just got his contact info. You have to hear back from him, but you know, you just make those. That's the process. You, just, you get the information that you need. It's, that's the tough piece about building local concepts is that you you have to have somebody, it doesn't need to be yourself, but you have to have somebody who understands the market, very similar to real estate, right? Like investing in real estate in Maine when I live in Arizona is not like, yeah, I could work, but do I truly understand what I'm getting myself into? Probably not, unless I have boots in the ground in Maine who's telling me this specific street is the hub you need to be in, right? So that's the key to places like Texas right now is the reason I have great opportunities in Texas since I have two or three sets of eyes that can tell me exactly where to be. Yeah, it's it's boots on the ground, getting on these streets and, and you know, learning the environment, learning the demographic, what's working, what's not. Yeah, totally. And, and tying this all together, just for clarity, how accessible is something like what you're talking about starting? So whether that be a little cafe like you've discussed or a, or a small ice cream shop, in terms of a financial setup cost and maybe what you want to have aside for something like this to get it off the ground, what sort of ballparks are we talking for something like this? Yeah. So I'll give you the, the costing food spot that we're working on. So realistically, that build out is going to cost about 80000 to start. Yep. You can finance that. You can bring some cash. But I, I would set aside eighty to 100000 for a, a good looking spot. You, you know, you can really go slim and, and get bare, bare minimum and be in the 50 to 60 range. But if you want to set yourself up for success and coffee is not, not a crazy operation right? mm. and neither is our food. Like we don't have a full kitchen. We have a very limited food menu. So 
that gives you a decent starting point. I would say for somebody starting in the space, going back to like, like you said, just connect with the people that that know how this game works. Yeah, totally. That's going to to make this a lot easier because there are so many steps involved from many creation to team to hiring, training, marketing. I mean, there's a thousand different things that you cannot do very well alone. You can do it, but you're not going to do it well. You need somebody, whether that's a general team member, a manager, whatever, to help you set this up for success. So 70 to 80, okay? Somewhere in that ballpark, maybe to start something small, get it up off the ground. Yeah, man. I think these types of businesses are so cool because there's just something special about having your physical spot in a community. You know, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a sense mm-hmm. of pride that comes from, that's my shop. That's what we're building. That's our team's kind of thing. And going there and taking yep. people, like when I was younger, my dad, he was in construction, but as a cash flow business, he bought a restaurant in the city. And, you know, all my birthdays were there when I was a young kid and that kind of thing. And there is something romantic about that kind of physical location, retail, food particularly, and a place where people can hang out and Absolutely. be part of the community. So it's awesome what you've built. Yeah, I think that's that's what attracted it to me after I, I dug more into the business. So it was like, this is different. This is cool. It's fun. There's a creative side that I can tap into here that could be you know, other concepts and other things that could come out of this, which, you know, they are now. Yeah. But yeah, there's this creative side and yeah, having a physical footprint in a community is cool because yeah, there's so many advantages to having something people can congregate to and can get a sense of, yeah, family, community. And so yeah, it's, it's cool. It's different than what I'm used to coming from a completely remote, basic consulting background. Right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Like the complete antithesis to, to what I was doing before. Absolutely. And for people that want to get involved with you and want to stay up to date on what's happening with the ice cream shops, what's happening with the coffee shops, where are the meetups happening? What's the best way to reach out to you or follow along? Yeah, Twitter would probably be the best way. That's that's where I'm pretty active. Yeah, I can confirm that you're active as hell on there. <laughs> <laughs> I try to be. And I'm starting a newsletter just for the event side of things to to have people stay in touch with where those are going to be because I'm doing some in Austin and I'll do some others around you know, around my travel schedule. Honestly, I'm happy to jump on calls and help anybody out. So if anybody has questions, concerns, wants to chop up some ideas, then I'd be happy to do so. Awesome, man. I appreciate that so much. Enjoy and uh, have a good day and we'll chat soon. All the best, man. You too, man. All right, guys, that's the conversation with Sean Allard. I don't know about you guys, but buying an ice cream store has been added to my bucket list. The key takeaway I'll remember from this episode was around the importance of connecting with other business owners, whether that's scoping out a location for your business, running over the financials of a potential acquisition, or getting new sales and marketing ideas to test out. Sean has mastered the art of leveraging the experience of other veteran business owners, which when you're young and fresh to the business game is extra valuable. So Thank you guys for listening in with me today. Don't forget, if you like the show, all I ask is that you share it with one friend. Just this week, we actually got ranked as a top 10 podcast in a weekly roundup on X. And that's just thanks to you guys sharing the show. So you're all amazing. I'm so grateful. I've got another pod coming your way on Thursday. But until then, keep getting after it. 